says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness." Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And Father, we just humbly ask right now for the help of your Holy Spirit once again as we've worshipped you through song and prayer and the giving of our resources and the other things we've done fellowshipping here this day with you and one another we ask now help us to worship by giving our hearts a submitted attitude to the authority of your word that we'd have an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church this morning through this particular portion of your word may every intent behind why you inspired it for us find its place in our hearts tonight lord speak to us this day this morning (laughs) by the power of your Holy Spirit and help us to hear that personal word you would have from us through this portion of Scripture. And we ask that believing that you'll do such in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 You may be seated. You know, as we round this Father's Day, uh, my three children, my daughters at this point, are 16 years old, 18 Uh, and the oldest almost 21 years old. And as a human father, uh, beyond these years of trying to take care of my children's needs practically and beyond the certain enjoyment, of course, of their company relationally, I have always had a goal or a target that I'm sort of clearly aiming at uh, in their lives in raising them as my children, that they would grow up to be adults whose lives are, first of all, pleasing to the Lord. That's numero uno, that they would come to know Jesus, have their own personal relationship with Jesus, that I'd raise them in such a way that that would transpire and that they would then also serve the Lord faithfully and effectively as mature Christians as they enter their adult lives. Secondly, my other goal is that they would be personally responsible that my heart has always been and the way I've raised them from when they were first born. One of my other goals and targets has been that they would grow up to be stable individuals, that they live responsible lives, wise lives in the culture as they become adults themselves. Then thirdly, the third thing I've been targeting and aiming at is that they would also then be productive and that they would be profitable. And what I mean by that is that they would be stable individuals, that they would seek to be, if you would, a blessing in the world rather than another burden in the culture as a human being, that instead they would be blessings, that they would be profitable individuals and effective in the world they live in. And I'm committed to that process. I have been uh, for a number of years. It's not completely finished yet. And I know that that process from day one was not going to happen automatically. 
If I just put it on autopilot as a dad and just tried to keep them alive and out of jail, those things weren't going to happen. It was going to take conscious, intentional investment, a willingness to be committed to their training and development. And they haven't always understood what I was doing. I'm sure that's a surprise. They haven't always, I'm sure, thoroughly appreciated it at the moment. And as a result, there were times when they would misunderstand what I was doing, when they would get frustrated with what I was doing or upset or even think it was unfair. But my love and greater knowledge of what is best for them kept me committed to the process and it prompted me to stay on track in that training process. Listen, despite my parental approval rating. And we talk about the president's approval rating. Sometimes parents are too concerned about their approval rating. Who cares? You're their parent. Your approval rating doesn't matter. Your approval rating before God is what matters. And loving them enough to do what's best for them is ultimately the chief goal and aim. Well, in the same way, we have a heavenly father as a child of God who has a target and an aim for our life as well. He's working in every one of our lives if you're a child of God and he has a goal in raising his kids spiritually and God too knows exactly what he's aiming for. And I know from the Bible exactly what that target and that aim is. Romans 8.29 says, For whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. That's the primary goal in the Father in Heaven's parenting process in our lives that we would become more Christ-like. To him, that's a mark of maturity. To him, that's pleasing to the Lord. To him, that's what's personally responsible as a Christian. And to him, that's what's productive and profitable. That we would live lives that become more Christ-like. We'd become more like Jesus. And to that end, our Father is lovingly working in each of our lives. He's investing in us, working in our lives. And let's be honest, we don't always understand what God's doing, why maybe he allows this or why that goes on. And We don't always appreciate the process as Father God is trying to work in our lives individually and sometimes we can misinterpret the purposes behind our struggles or some of the strain we deal with in our lives or maybe even some of the suffering and challenges he may let us go through. And as Christians, we need to remember our sufferings, please hear me, are never punishment from God. Even when our suffering is a direct result of our sin, our sufferings as Christians are never the punishment of God because that would contradict the fact that God punished Jesus for all of our sin. That was sufficient punishment. Jesus said, it is finished. So the punishment for your sin was placed upon Jesus. Now, we may experience in our lives as Christians correction, discipline for our sin, but it's never punitive. It's not God punishing you or getting you because you've sinned or made a mistake. It may be God's correction or discipline. Certainly, our life struggles are just the tools that God uses as a father to develop us and to train us. And we find a continual repeated word, if you notice in what we read this morning in our text that we're going to look at, that really is what becomes kind of the main point of this passage about the fatherhood of God and the analogy of how a father parents his own child in a human relationship. You notice seven times, if you didn't pick up on it, there's this word that shows up translated chastening. 
Seven times in seven verses, we have this same term, chasten or chastening. And I think it's important to have a clear understanding of what that word means. We may not use that in our English vernacular as much today in our modern culture. And, and sometimes we even hear the word chasten and we, we may get a, a misconstrued idea of what we think that would refer to. That term that's used there in the Greek, the term chasten, that's used seven times in this passage, it spoke of the ancient father's responsibility and commitment to child training in fact Wiest who's a Greek scholar very helpful this is how he speaks about giving his explanation of what that Greek term means there regarding chasten I'll read you his words he says this word was used of the whole training and education of children it speaks also of whatever cultivates the soul especially correcting mistakes and curbing passions it speaks of the instruction which aims at the increase of virtue or what we might say good character. The word does not have the idea of punishment, but of corrective measures which will eliminate evil in life and encourage the good. You know, one commentator said punishment is the work of a judge. Chastening is the work of a father. So when we hear this word here, chastening, as we're looking at in our text, what should come into your mind when you hear chasten here, child training. Don't just automatically hear in your mind something else. Hear child training. And what does child training involve? Well, it includes instruction, right? It, it includes giving guidance, direction, and it does also involve correction to some extent. But it's not just correction. Child training is a process where a parent subjects their child to what cultivates proper life development, to train them, to cultivate them with a number of different activities. It's a process that the child usually doesn't find pleasant. It's not something they always enjoy, but it's intentionally done to do what's profitable for them. So the writer using this analogy of a father training their child as a human relationship He's now going to speak of this to describe how God the Father is a perfect father, an ideal father, and he works in the same way for our spiritual lives as children of God. So from this, we can certainly two things glean. Lessons number one about the fatherhood of God and how that operates in your life as a child of God. How God is operating as a father in a parental role in your life. And secondly, for those of us who are fathers, or those of you young men who will one day become fathers, you can certainly, we can, glean lessons of what as human fathers we should be engaged in. Representing the heavenly father in his perfect rule. The background of Hebrews 12 is very simply this. The Hebrew Christians were becoming very weary and discouraged in their souls because of enduring hardships and their circumstances and their struggles with sin that they were wrestling with. And the writer wants them to find endurance and have a proper perspective. That's why he says, if you look with me in verse 5, you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. And then he quotes Proverbs 3. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. So the writer is trying to remind these believers that a part of their facing challenges in their personal lives is what it means actually to be a child of God and to be developed 
as God the Father is trying to bring about training and child training as a good father in our lives. Just like a parent, God the Father works the same way. It seems while under their struggles, they had forgotten this spiritual principle. So the writer says here in verse 5, you've forgotten the biblical instruction which speaks to you as God's children. He's saying somehow you're forgetting and you need to remember that as God's children, he's going to relate to you like a father. That this is what it's supposed to be. This is what we need and it's what God's doing. So he quotes here from Proverbs 3 as the basis for his spiritual instruction, how God the Father seeks to do child training in his children's lives. And as he speaks about this process of child training, in verse 5 here, he cautions against, I believe, two different responses that we can have as God's children to when he's doing his child training in our life as our Heavenly Father. Both responses of which we can have, he mentions, are unhealthy and improper responses. The first response he points out that we can have is not healthy and that's this is that we can dislike it and we can despise it he says there in verse 5 my son don't despise the chastening the child training of the lord the word despise means to look down on something as of no value and worth it gives the idea of seeing something as of no importance and no appreciation and so you don't have any respect for it and in the same way in the parent-child relationship humanly, a child can despise their parent's proper role in their life. And as the parent is just trying to do what's proper in their role of child training, sometimes the child can despise it. They see no value to it. They get upset with it. And a child, therefore, shows no respect or appreciation for the value of what their father does or the purpose he's trying to fulfill in raising them. And instead of humbly submitting to the parent's role, sometimes the child despising it, actually, when the parent's trying to train or correct or discipline with their proper authority, they get offended at it, right? They get angry over it. Sometimes children, even with a lack of appreciation, become resentful and even rebellious and may even start to angrily strive against the role and the authority of their parent and even become somewhat rebellious in their resistance to their parent's role in their life. Well, the same can happen spiritually. We can, in a sense, despise the child training of the Lord. And as he's trying to work in our lives, we undergo the process of God working in our lives as a father. And sometimes we become resentful. We don't like the way God's working in our life. We don't like what God's allowing or maybe what he's subjecting us to or where he corrects us or intervenes in certain ways. And so therefore, sometimes we can make the mistake as God's children, we start to resist the work of God in our life. We start to become almost angry, even rebellious at God's role in our life, and we can become disobedient spiritual children. And this is not a healthy thing. The second response we can have, which is not good either in verse 5 he mentions, is not just disliking and despising it, but this is almost the other side, is we can overreact and be overly sensitive, if you would, to the child training process. Look what he says in verse 5 as well. Nor, as well he says, this isn't good either, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by God. And here he points out another thing. Sometimes when a child is rebuked or corrected by their parent, 
instead of getting angry, they kind of do the exact opposite. And if you have more than one kid, sometimes you notice they have different temperaments. You know, one, you're thinking you need to come down with the weight of the world on to just get their attention. The other one, you just look at them cross-eyed and they instantly just melt because they're sort of oversensitive in a sense. They, they almost hypercompensate and they're oversensitive to correction. And sometimes instead of a child getting angry, they take it way too personally. And the smallest correction or a simple correction or pointing out something in their life, they make it a much larger issue than what it needs to be. And somehow the tiniest form of correction, they're hypersensitive and they feel as if the world's falling apart because you've actually shown them that they're not perfect. Or you've actually pointed out the tiniest thing, please don't do that or, or bring correction in their life. And, and because they're hypersensitive, they sort of fall apart emotionally and they feel very self-condemned and they become hypercritical and they want to just give up and throw in the towel. And this child becomes super discouraged by any form of training or correction that the parent brings. And sometimes, to be honest, we can have this wrong response to the work of the Lord in our lives. Sometimes we can be oversensitive whenever correction or chastening happens from the Lord. The slightest correction of our attitude and behavior as a child of God and instantly we sort of become totally distraught and a person comes completely condemned and hypercritical and it becomes a much larger issue than what it really needs to be. And the smallest form of rebuke or correction or the Lord trying to deal with us regarding something, a person becomes totally distraught and they fall into self-pity and condemnation and they begin to just really feel like the world is falling apart because of one mistake that they've made. And one failure to them makes them feel condemned as if somehow they're now crippled and they live in self-pity and condemnation. Let me give you a simple reminder. If that's your struggle, we're going to fail. Everyone fails. Look around this room. The one thing that's common with everybody in this room, we're all failures. All of us. And we're really good at it. We fail in different... Listen, we're going to fail. That's the whole reason Jesus went to the cross. And I'm not saying we should find excuse for our failures and abuse the grace of God, but it's not the end of the world to fail. Maybe it's the end of the world of pride that you mistakenly hold in your heart too much that it bothers you so bad to fail. Maybe God's working on your humility and instead of being hypersensitive and overreacting to it, realize, just be thankful that God's letting you see the truth about yourself. It's not the end of the world. You made a mistake. Plead the blood of Jesus. It's not the end of the world. Other Christians fail too. Everyone makes mistakes, and it's a valuable process that we're experiencing in a good way, God's involvement in our lives. So neither one of those things is a healthy response. He says in verse 6, for whom the Lord loves, and this gets to the motive of why God child trains, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. So the motive or basis for the reason why the Lord does this training process in our lives as children of God, very simply is he says this, he loves us. He does this out of his love for us. The point he's trying to make, thinking of the human parent-child analogy, is the Lord's work in our life displays his love just like a parent cares enough to take the time and effort 
to invest in their child's life, to raise them, to train them, to try and do what's best for them. The Lord actually cares enough to take the time to get involved in our individual lives in a very personal way. We should remember this morning, his personal involvement in your life indicates you matter to him. It's because you matter to him so much, that's why he gets involved in your life. And it's not a demonstration that he's picking on you or setting... No, it's his love for us because if he didn't love us, what would he do? He'd let us do whatever we want. He'd let us get involved in destructive patterns of life and dangerous habits. And it's because he loves us enough that without trying to, you know, in a sense, control our lives in an unhealthy way, God will bring measures of correction and discipline. And at times when we're doing what's wrong, he's going to try and stop us. He's going to intervene in certain ways. He's going to allow us at times to struggle with certain things that are just part of life experiences. Why? Because he wants to see us mature. He doesn't want us to be a, 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 a snotty, you know, a nursery Christian our whole life. He wants us to grow up, develop some maturity. And some of that comes with just experiencing some things so our character can be developed and we can grow and mature. And as I said, if need be at times, he's going to correct. He may even at times, to protect us from error, give a, a firm divine spanking by maybe allowing consequences to come into my life for bad choices I made or some pursuit that was sinful, that was foolish. And why? Is he trying to punish me? No, he just doesn't want me to repeat the errors again. Like any good father, I never found pleasure in spanking my children. And yes, I spanked my children. I believe it's biblical. But I never enjoyed the process. I dreaded the process. But it was something that for their benefit, again, though they did not understand that, but the good thing is now I don't have to do that anymore because something happened. There was a developmental thing that came into their life. Here's the bottom line. Behaving selfishly and lacking self-control, those are marks of immaturity. Those are marks of childishness. Young children, when they're young, the marks of their immaturity and childishness is they have no self-control and, and by nature, they're very selfish. Well, God wants to drive those things out of our lives and so therefore he will work in our lives. It's because he loves us he's working in our lives the way that he is. I look at it in some ways, again, child training, it, it's like, like a coach who sees potential in an athlete and when a coach sees potential in an athlete, what do they typically do? They're a lot of times harder on that athlete with all the great potential. And the athlete, man, what's the, why are you so hard on me? Why are you so hard on me? Because I want to see you because it's so easy for you and I know how much potential you have. I want to see you arrive to your fullest potential. So he works in that way to train. Well, Jesus says in Revelation 3.19, listen, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous and repent. So Jesus says, look, it's because I love you. Therefore, I will at times rebuke and chasten. So he says, look, take it eagerly and respond to my correction. I'm trying to do what's best for your life. Well, using these lessons of a father-child relationship as the analogy, he then says in verse 7, if you endure chastening, child training, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? I want you to notice as we go into these next few verses, it is assumed, just assumed in the Bible that good fathers will train instruct guide 
and correct their own children. He makes the statement in verse 7, if you're enduring this chastening and child training, God's dealing with you like sons. When you experience child training, you're being dealt with in a normal way that a child's supposed to be dealt with, the Bible's saying. And then he asks a rhetorical question. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten or child train? The point there being that it's an abnormal thing when a father does not responsibly perform this duty, which tells me two things about the parent-child relationship. It is a father's God-given role and responsibility and natural duty to train and discipline their child. It is our responsibility before God as men and we must take it seriously. The book of Proverbs gives over a dozen commands regarding parental instruction. Ephesians 6.4 says specifically to the fathers, bring your children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. You know, fathers, this morning, God commands us to do this. It is a ministry that we are to fulfill faithfully. It's a calling of the Lord. It's our spiritual duty. And moms, you're to compliment dad's effort. You're to come alongside and compliment that lead, that primary effort by partnering and supporting in the endeavor. And be careful, not ever contradicting or resisting the effort, but complimenting it as he takes that role in the child's life. And a child's duty is therefore to recognize this is the role of the father in the home and to respond to that accordingly. A child should learn to properly appreciate this isn't something that dad's just got an authority trip. No, dad's doing what God put dad in our family to do. This is what a father's supposed to do. This is his God-given calling and role, the design of a dad. God placed that parent, that father there for that purpose. And as a child, if you're a young person, you need to recognize you need instruction. And you need correction. You know, we're right now in the process of teaching our third of three daughters how to drive. And there's that process of the permit for a year before you get the license. And when I was training all three girls to drive, you know, I would, throughout that year process, I would bring up a reminder on occasion because you know how that is, you're sitting there in a the seat and sometimes you want to say something, use the instruction moment, which is what it's supposed to be. And there's, there's almost as if they would get a little, you could see the frustration. Why are you telling me how to drive? Because you don't have a license yet. <laughs> there's a reason you don't have a license yet. And see, children need to learn. Why are you correcting me? Why are you? Because you're not an adult yet. You're not paying your own bills yet. You don't have the authority to operate your own household yet. So until you have that, you're in the permit stage. I'm supposed to instruct you. I'm supposed to correct you. I'm supposed to counsel you and guide you. I'm not giving you, I don't know how many times I've said, I'm, gonna, I'm not giving you a hard time. I'm not trying to give you a hard time here. So let's not make this hard. I'm trying to prep you because you're an arrow in my quiver. And one day I got to launch you. And I'm not thrilled about the process. But when I launch you, I want you to fly straight and be on target and hit the point. And for them to understand this helps them, I believe, to how to relate to it. And the same is being applied spiritually. He's saying here in regards to us with God, God's not trying to give us a hard time. He's not angry with us. 
He's training us. It's a constant process of bringing us into Christian maturity. He says, verse 8, but if you are without chastening, in other words, there's no child training going on, of which all children have become partakers, that's the proper way, then he says, if there's no child chastening going on, then he says, perhaps you're illegitimate and not really sons. Now, the point he's drawing here is this. One of the indicators that a child belongs to a certain person as the parent of that child is that parent's right and responsibility to train, correct, and discipline that child personally and directly. This is the role of the parent. When a child belongs to you, it's your role and responsibility to train, control, cultivate, and discipline that child because they're your child. They belong to you. As much as we all may like to on occasion, we don't overcorrect or spank the neighbor's children. Correct? You may be tempted once in a while in a Walmart. There's an occasion where you, it, it may come over you, but that's not our role. Why? They're, simply, they're not our children. That's not our right. And nor is that our role to do that. What is our role? Learning our role is to be actively engaged in doing it with our children. And that's enough to keep all of us busy when we have a child. Our role is to be fully engaged with the responsibility to train and discipline our own children properly. And that's a mark that distinguishes them as our children. It's an obvious distinction. That is his child because he's engaged in their life. He's the one cultivating, training, correcting, keeping them under control, counseling them, disciplining them. That's the indication. And in the same way, with that same reasoning, the writer is saying here in verse 8, this is how we can tell we belong to God spiritually. This is how we can actually tell that we are now children of God because God's actively participating in our life in a very evident way. His work and involvement in my life is something that confirms to me, okay, I belong to you, Lord, because you just corrected me there. And I acted in a way I shouldn't, and the, boy, the correction of your spirit. Thank you, Lord. I know I belong to you. Were the times where a little divine spanking comes into our life and, and he corrects us in some way, that distinguishes you're in the family, son. You belong to me. You're truly born again. You are truly a child of God. The fact that he doesn't let us get away with things, right? Man, I, I just can't get away with anything anymore. I mean, this, I mean, sometimes I just cop a bad attitude and God convicts me. Good. That's indicating, right? He's not letting you get away with stuff. As soon as you start to err a little bit, he gets engaged in your life. That's an encouraging thing that you belong to the Lord, his correction in your life. That's a testimony you're a child of God. Now, the opposite is true. If you don't really see God's involvement in your life in a personal way, you may want to honestly take into consideration maybe you're not yet a child of God. And you can resolve that this morning. God wants to be in your life in a loving, personal, intimate way, but that comes with you at some point coming to him, recognizing you are a sinner and your sins separate you from God. But Jesus, his son, is the savior. And Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again from the dead. And you come to God through accepting and embracing Jesus Christ as your savior. That's how you become a child of God as you pray to invite Christ 
into your life as the Savior for your sin. The Spirit of God comes into you and then His Spirit then bears witness with your spirit internally. You are a child of God. And this process begins as God then begins child training you. You legitimately become a spiritual child. So if you don't see that involvement in your life, well, we can begin the process this morning. You can pray to receive Christ and become a child of God. Look what he says going on in verse 9. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more, the writer says, readily therefore be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? So he speaks how it is an appropriate thing for a child to submissively, notice the term there, respect the father in their life when being corrected by him. Now, the word there being corrected, correction speaks of being confronted when you're doing what's wrong. It speaks of someone asking you to change because you are doing what is not right and maybe even receiving some discipline to help you make the change if that's what's necessary. And this is what he's beginning to address now. Truth of the matter is this, ladies and gentlemen, part of life is being corrected. Everybody needs to be corrected once in a while in their life. And if you are a person who struggles with receiving correction, you're going to struggle with life. To the extent that you have a hard time, your hair goes up on the back of your neck when the slightest little measure of correction comes into your life from your employer, from a friend, from somebody who has some measure of authority in your life, or even just somebody who's trying to, quite frankly, keep you accountable, just out of love for you, and it bothers you, or you get a chip on your shoulder, or you notice an attitude rate. Listen, if you struggle with receiving correction, you're going to struggle in life. Part of life is being corrected. We all need it at times in our lives. It's a healthy thing, a helpful thing. And it's one of the reasons that God created fathers to fulfill that role, to bring a measure of correction. He says there in verse 9, we've all had human fathers who corrected us. And we respected what they did, that role. Children by nature, as I said, are immature, they're childish, they're also sinful, and so they behave accordingly. And it is the role of the father to address that, to help purge those things from their life. Let, let me make a few statements of truth that I think help for a very confused culture. First of all, fathers are supposed to exercise authority over their children's attitudes and behavior. That is the role of the father. Fathers are to be in charge and be in control, or if need be, take control of their children as they're raising them, as they're training them. And fathers should take the lead and responsibility in the correction process in the family life. Listen to Proverbs 22.15, a few of those parenting verses. Proverbs 22.15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child and the rod of correction will drive it far from him. Listen, don't get afraid. Why does my kid act like that? Why they, why, 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 they're just, I, I don't know how many times I hear this. I have the, I have the strong-willed child. No, you have a normal-willed child. They're all strong-willed child. Foolishness is bound up. They're a child. It's bound up in the heart of a child. They, by nature, are born sinful. When they're screaming in that crib, if they could rip open those bars to set themselves free like a prisoner, they would do it. 
because you're not accommodating their hunger or their want to get out. And listen, if you don't curb that by driving it out of them, driving these things out of their lives, that's why some of them end up behind steel bars. Because perhaps someone never helped them to drive the foolishness that's the inclined thing in every human being. We're selfish, we're, we're, we're disrespectful, we're impatient, we're unkind, we're self-centered. And these things, we have no self-control. These things have to be driven out of a child. It's bound up in them. It's a process. You've got to realize, he says, the rod of correction will drive it far from him. Part of your role as a parent, dad, mom, is you've got to be working to realize, yeah, these things exist there. But my job is not to accept them, to embrace them, or even make excuses for them. Or even just, well, as long as they don't do it in public and embarrass me, I'll let them do it at home. No, you have to try and work continuously to drive those unhealthy things out to cultivate the good character and to suppress those sinful tendencies. Proverbs 13:24 says, "He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him, listen, disciplines him promptly." Dealing with it in the moment. That's part of the inconvenience of being a parent. Sometimes it look, it's exhausting, man, it takes work. They act in a certain way, they Can you come here for a minute? You, oh, I'm too busy. I'm doing something. No, you are not too busy. This is the most important job you have. You stop. You embrace the moment. It's a teaching opportunity. Use it for an occasion to invest, to correct as necessary. He says, Proverbs 23, 13. Do not withhold correction from a child. For if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. Let me say this in sincerity from my heart this morning. Dads, don't be lazy and don't be cowards here. And let your wife do the hard work. Be a man. God made you a man. Exercise the fortitude that God's given to you as a man. Have a backbone and trust me, trust me, trust me. You can do it because you're called to it. You can rise to the occasion. God will give you the grace. And this is important for your sense of purpose as a man. This is important for your role and, and, and the image that you have within your home as a male. This will help your marriage. This will help the way your wife views you and the way your children view you and relate to you. Sadly, there are too many, in my opinion, at times children who are out of control or become out of control and there are too many exhausted women in our culture. And often, that's in connection to negligence of a father. You know, I was somewhere not that long ago uh, with my family. There are other families there. Um, and was watching this one particular family. And uh, the family has two small children. Probably, I'd say, somewhere under five years old. Very, very young. And the mom's pregnant with a third. And I'm watching the mom. She's got two toddlers. And she's pregnant with her third. And we're at this gathering. And the dad's sitting there. And I look over his shoulder. He's sitting there in a chair while the mom's you know, pregnant, chasing the kids. And the dad's sitting there. And he's playing a game on his phone. Now, after I wanted to slap him in the back of his head, which I didn't, because he was a little bigger than me and I've learned wisdom over the years. After that, uh, the teaching opportunity. I took one of my daughters and I said, come here. 
I brought her over. And I told her, look over her shoulder. You see what he's doing? I said, we don't want those kind. <laughs> it's ridiculous. You're sitting there playing a game on your phone while your pregnant wife is running around trying to take care of two small children? I mean, th- this is just foolishness. It's irresponsibility. And often, it doesn't have to be this way. We can turn the tide. Let us as God's people, knowing the truth, turn the tide in our own lives, our own families, be examples that we can, and take this ministry seriously and encourage other families too. Encourage others to see God's design. And children, notice here we see from the Bible, are to respect their fathers. He says in verse 9 that those children paid respect to their fathers. Notice, paid respect. Children are to pay respect. When you pay something, that means it's something that's properly owed. There's an obligation. Something is due. So the Bible is saying is that it is proper for children to give what's due to their fathers, which is fathers are due respect, which means children should relate to them in that way, showing respect out of obedience to God. Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3 speak of how children are to obey their parents in all things, for this is right and well-pleasing to the Lord. And as parents raising them, let us require respect from our children. And I said the word, require. Require respect. It is what is due. It's what should be paid to the father, to the parent, and not accept or allow disrespect. And here's a hint. It's going to happen. But don't allow it. Require respect. When we were raising the girls, whether it was when they were young or when they were older, to me, I didn't allow them to disrespect their mother either. I'm not going to let some person speak to my wife in a disrespectful way. And I would say, it was us before you were ever showing up. And you're going to leave soon and make me feel bad. And people don't speak to my wife that way. She's not just your mom, she's my wife. And you will not speak to my wife like that in our home. You won't do that. You show respect. And this is a healthy thing. Why? Because we had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. He says, in light of that, verse 9, shall we not much more readily then be in subjection to the Father of our spirits and live? What he's trying to say is teaching children that process and them learning how to pay respect to a human father is what prepares them, guess what? To show respect for a heavenly father someday. To understand the authority of God. He says, shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the heavenly father if we submit to human fathers and earthly authority we're going to be more prepared he's trying to say and we should how much more submit to the heavenly father if we respected our human father and obeyed what he asked of us how much more the heavenly father he holds my very breath in his hand my existence and my eternity is under his control he is worthy of my submission and of my respect and if we're going to do things and get off track God's going to at times bring some correction but we should be responsive to that we should have a submitted spirit subject ourselves to God's authority perhaps recently I don't know maybe for some of you in this room maybe recently God's been trying to correct something in your life maybe God's been trying to change something that he doesn't like my question is this are you yielding or are you resisting are you showing respect to God's work of authority the Bible says woe to him who strives against his maker, you'll always lose that wrestling match. Respect the correction of God. Receive it. It's to our advantage, he says, because as we do this to that extent, we shall live. The idea is have the life 
that God wants us to have a good life, stable and experiencing the best. Verse 10, he says, For they indeed, human fathers, for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he, God, does it for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. So continuing with the idea of a human father providing this training and correction, he says our human fathers for a season, for a time, to the best of their limited ability, they sought to train us and raise us and correct us. And notice he says there, verse 10, they did it as seemed best to them. Here's the point, the best they knew how. To the best of their ability, according to what maybe they thought was best for us, and let's be honest, sometimes fathers, even with good intention, don't do the best. And they may think it's what's best. No human father is perfect. No human father is never going to make a mistake. They simply do the best that they know how. And sometimes fa fathers are going to make mistakes in their human weakness. Sometimes they're too easy. Sometimes we can be too harsh. Sometimes we have the wrong aim for our kids' lives. And let me say this. Please hear me, every one of you this morning. Don't let an imperfect father in your life interfere with the rest of your life experience. They did the best they knew how. They're not perfect. And for some of you, maybe it was really hard. Or maybe your father really didn't do that good of a job and maybe they didn't do any job. I don't know. We've all had different experiences. But please hear me. Don't let an imperfect father and your experience of that interfere with the rest of your life experience. It doesn't have to be that way. There's a heavenly father who his process is always good with the perfect balance of wisdom, instruction, and consistency. He won't neglect his role. He'll never abuse his authority. He says our heavenly father works not like human fathers who did the best they could. He always works for our profit. He's always going to do what's good in your life. He's going to bring what's useful and helpful. And he wants us to become partakers of his holiness. The idea is that we'd become more like him. That we'd become more Christ-like, more godly in our lives. And that human father may not have done the best at times, but there's a heavenly father who can fill the void in your life. And he will always do what is best for you and most profitable. And let that, in a sense, be the experience that helps liberate you from anything that was an inconsistency with the human father. He then concludes verse 11 saying, you know, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. My kids never thanked me for a spanking. But painful. Always was when Mr. Woody came out. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So he concludes wanting to give a realistic perspective on the child training work and to have a right outlook towards it. As a parent, and as a child, whether it's God's work in our life or our work in our children's life, when a child's being trained, as I said, it's not usually enjoyable. In the moment for the present, it's a lot of times even maybe somewhat painful. If there's a, a disciplinary action, it's not pleasant in the moment, yet down the road, down the road. As they're trained by it, ultimately, those good investments, as you're cultivating the soil of the human heart, it ultimately yields something good. And ultimately, down the road, the child sees it, and then they appreciate it years later what the parent invested in their life. Or the parent, ultimately, down the road, begins to see the good fruit. And as parents, let me remind you, remember that long-term thing to help have the endurance in the process. You're not going to see immediate results. That's okay. Keep sowing. Keep 
harvesting. Keep doing. The principle here is true as well to a spiritual degree. God our Father sometimes is working in our life. He's correcting and it may not be pleasant and there's a measure of pain and challenges in our lives. Maybe we go through a season that's hard, but look what he's saying in verse 11. But nevertheless, afterward, it's going to yield something. It's going to yield something good in your life. The idea there is agricultural images. It's preparing the ground, planting and tending. It's a farming thing and farming is an investing process. But ultimately the fruit comes in season. God's investing in our lives. And look what he's trying to produce. A life that is righteous, that is lived right in relationship with God and men. And a life that yields, he says, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. That is God wants us to have a life that experiences peace. Stability. Why? Because I'm living the way God wants me to live. And I'm learning how to live the right way. What's our part in the process? Very simply, he says, verse 11, that we may, in a sense, afterward allow it to happen. So therefore, what do we need to do now? We need to cooperate with the process. We need to lean into it. We need to let God work and let our lives be trained and developed. It may not seem joyful for the present, but painful, but he says afterwards going to yield something good and fruitful for those who have been, look what it says, trained by it. Here's the point. Lean into the struggle. Lean, oh, this is hard. It's a hard time. It's okay. Lean into it. Let God work. Maybe you're being corrected for something you shouldn't have done. Can I say something? Don't try and run from the consequences. Consequences are the best teachers because you can't argue against them. If I say something verbally correct, somebody can try and debate with me. And a lot of times people out-debate me. But if you just let consequences come, consequences you can't argue against. So if you're experiencing consequences for something that you did that you shouldn't, embrace the consequences. Let it have its effect. Stop trying to escape the consequences. Those consequences will help you, train you, and keep you from ever going down the same path again. God is a good father. He knows what he's doing in our lives. Let's stand together. We'll pray.